This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Eva Lau. Eva is the founder and general partner of Two Small Fish Ventures. In this episode, we discuss how she grew Wattpad's community to millions of users, how to not get caught in FOMO as an investor, the nuances of raising capital for a fund versus a startup, and areas where we can improve Canadian tech. Please enjoy my conversation with Eva Lau. Eva, I'd really like to start with your time at, uh, you took industrial engineering at U of T. Why did you take industrial engineering and what was that experience like? You want to know the truth or the model answer? The truth was, um, you know, I was born and raised in Hong Kong and came here to finish my high school. So you can imagine my upbringing was extremely Asian and traditional. So um, being the elder daughter in my family, my mom actually didn't give me much choices. She said, you either become a doctor, a dentist, accountant, engineer, and a, you know, and a lawyer, choose one. And I'm like, mm, okay, I'll be an engineer. So that's basically, you know, b- uh, based on, uh, my strength in math. And uh, I just feel that I'm a kind of a black and white person. 
when you go into a discipline and there's always a right answer, then it was so easy for me to kind of grasp that. And that's why I went into engineering. And out of all the discipline, I found that engineering, uh, particularly in industrial, was more uh, diverse. It's, uh, it can be applied to many things. So unlike my husband, Alan, who did electrical, then it's like electrical all the way, or people who've done material uh, uh, science and en- uh, engineering, there's very material. For, for me, industrial, it's, it can be applied to uh, many uh, dif- disciplines. And what attracted me the most is actually the human-machine interface. You know, how human interface with system, how human interface with data, how human interface with a chair. You know, that's all about ergonomics and that's all about human factors. And ju- I just love that aspect of uh, industrial engineering very much. And you talked about applying it to a bunch of different things and it seemed like you jumped in kind of the tech space in the late nineties, early two thousands here in Canada. What was that space like in your early career? So in my early career, um, you can, uh, I wouldn't, I would say certainly have changed. Uh, has it changed much? I think, uh, in some aspect, yes, but in some aspects still kind of slow in terms of progress. So when I joined, um, you know, uh, the, a software company, as soon as I graduated, uh, from university, I still remember that, Within my department, it was the Quality Assurance Engineering Department. Uh, we have maybe love, you know, roughly 10 people, and two of us are women. And uh, certainly was the minority there. And then later on, um, when I became the program manager uh, you know, of the project, and I managed, you know, I would say, a team of like 20 to 30 software engineers, um, many, many instances, I found myself being the only woman in the room. And uh, so, you know, only women, let alone the only Asian woman in the room. So certainly, you know, was very different. And um, but I think the world has progressed a lot right now. Like if we look at the U of T engineering, uh, you know, in the last few years, uh, the acceptance rate uh, for women, it's almost half half of them, if not more. So we are actually seeing big progress when it comes to uh, uh, gender equality or I should say more opportunities for women. And at the same time, I think a lot of companies are taking the approach of, you know, kind of like striving for the whole DEI uh, strategy. And I have seen some fruits of it. Uh, so that's great. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, in a, in, in a way for us women, we being recognized for our work and given more opportunity, I think is absolutely a great thing. What are some things you think that people can do, whether whether they're the employer, employee, wherever they are on the spectrum? What can we do to get more women in like engineering and into tech, into the business space? So I think, you know, uh, it always kind of like stuff from the cradle. It, it's not necessarily easy to kind of like, you know, let's just change things overnight. But at the same time, um, I've worked with many great women in my life in the tech community. Many of them, they didn't necessarily, you know, graduate with an engineering degree. But guess what? They have been in the industry long enough, perhaps in a marketing role, perhaps in customer support role, uh, perhaps in business strategy roles because they were in business school. And through osmosis, they actually picked up a lot when it comes to product development, when it comes to innovations, when it comes to putting the you know innovation uh, 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 frontier. And those are great, great, great you know asset that employers should be able to leverage. So I would say that you know while we you know start off from the cradle, encouraging more young girls get into STEM, I think you know look around. You know we have a lot of great talented women who may not necessarily have that technical training, but 
they are just equally good when it comes to you know product building. And you know what? One thing I always always、uh, say is that when you build a global product, you cannot just make it work for men. <laughs> you have to make it work for everyone under the sun. So you know to bring in that perspective, you know that diversity,、uh, you know whether it's ethnicity or whether it's、um, you know gender,、uh, those kind of diversity in the team, it's always great because at the end of the day, your product will always work for the global、uh, market. So I always encourage、uh, CEOs to build you know a diverse team from the get go, so that they can tap into the different pockets of talent. And build a very well-rounded product to serve the world. With your time at Wattpad, you're focused on community, especially even like a global community. And I feel like community nowadays is, is such a buzzword. Everyone's building community with their different products. What was something that made you know maybe Wattpad successful from a community aspect? Like, what were some things that worked well for you? And what are some kind of basic principles, if you have any, for building a good community? I'm so glad you asked this question because, in some ways, I feel the same way.、Uh, community is a very loose word these days to come to to describe, you know, like-minded people, you know, collaborating, you know, doing things together. So let me just kind of like, you know, talk about it in two love in two levels. One is a very high level of how do you build great communities, and then I want to delve right in, you know, to talk to. You know the founders in you know in the audience right now to talk about building products for communities because that's you know in 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 those two layers they are actually very different. Well, kind of. So, in a way, when I look at communities,、um, a lot of people feel that it's only like-minded people coming together to collaborate. But for a very successful platform-based community, it's actually allowing. Many, 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 many different like-minded communities to sit under one roof. So imagine if you go into a community center in a physical space, you have one room, you know, when people are playing poker, and then you have another room, people, you know, playing, you know, doing gymnastics, and then you have another room, people reading, you know, books. So that's what it's all about. It's you know having one platform and being able to kind of take care of what we call the head of the community, meaning that they may be very niche. But you know, a lot of people want to do that, and at the same time, being able to entertain the long tail of the community, meaning that they may be very, very small groups, but they have many, 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 many of them. So think about plotting a dinosaur on a graph. You will have the head being very, very tall, and the bulk of it will be the torso, kind of in the mid range, and then they have a long tail that's very, very low and go all the way, you know, to the、um, infinite scale in your x-axis. So that's how I kind of see it. It's like community for any product should be able to to you know kind of include the head, the torso, and the tail of a dinosaur. And、uh, so keep that in mind. It's not necessarily one voice. It's the ability to support different opinion, different interest group, yet at the same time under the same umbrella. Now, when we're talking about the other layer at the product level, this is going to be very interesting because a lot of companies. Um, I would say even founders, you know, during the early days, they say, "I want to build a community to have like-minded people to collaborate," and they usually talked about that collaboration about just connecting them and let them chat. So they will be thinking about, "Oh, we want people to talk about art, so we're gonna bring in people here to talk about art," or, "Oh, we want people to talk about, you know, photography, because、so、we we want to kind of create a community for photographers." 
But going back to some of the, you know, maybe we'll talk about it later, you know, the asset model that I've created uh, for any platform, founders should be very focused on what the atomic unit is. Like what do, what do you, we want the user really, really want to do on the platform. So rather than just say connecting people to chat, because that they can chat on WhatsApp, they can chat on many, many different platforms. But if they wanted them to specifically contribute to the network that you're building, that's what you need to kind of like be very focused when you build a product. And I would love to touch on that asset framework. You know, I watched that TechTO talk that you gave on it. So what are, what are some fundamentals of that? We could link that in the show notes, obviously, but what are some of the fundamentals of this asset framework you built out? So the fundamentals uh, of the asset framework was actually, you know, built, you know, in hindsight, based on what we have done at Wattpad. I guess what at that time we were kind of really shooting in the dark and uh, trying to figure out how to build this network and grow it from tens of thousands of users to tens of millions of users organically without any marketing. Um, so it's always product-led growth. But when we build products, we always kind of like figure, try to kind of like, you know, balance the, the constraint of resources and satisfy what the customer or what the user are, are asking us. It's always a fine line. You know, if we do everything, you know, that the user asks, we probably will be overbuilt. Uh, but if we don't listen to them, then we probably will never reach product market fit because we're not necessarily, you know, listening to their feedback. So the asset framework was kind of in hindsight, took the le lessons that I've learned, but at the same time, you know, take uh, learn from all the portfolio companies that I've invested in to kind of how do you build this network in such a way that they can organically grow and can engage, you know, in a very meaningful and regular basis until you grow that proprietary data set that will allow any companies to monetize or grow beyond the current product based on the proprietary data. So that's the idea of the asset framework. And you mentioned there, you know, growing from tens of thousands to tens of millions. When you look at it from a community framework, do things change as you scale? Do you need to think about things differently from a product standpoint? Or are you baking that in early enough um, that it can handle that scale and it can grow? Or does a community change over that time? Community will always change over that time, but the platform will not. Right, you have put in all these effort to build this platform. It's not easy to say, you know what, let's just kind of forget about this and just kind of like do it from the ground up. So that's why I meant, you know, if we build a platform right, we should be able to kind of support many different communities to grow under one platform, grow under one roof. So it's just like those rooms in a community, you know, center. You know, this may have designed it to, for people to pay, play card games. But guess what? You know, people don't want to play card games anymore. They want to use the same table, same chairs to do Lego, you know, projects together. Hey, the infrastructure is there. It's just another interest group. Um, obviously, you cannot deviate too much. You cannot, you know, change a card game room and turn it into a judo studio. You know, it's just not not feasible. So, so you obviously, when the community changes, it's not necessarily, you know, upside down turning, you know, completely different. But I think... Uh, if founders are mindful of what they are really trying to build right off from the get-go, what kind of community they really want to build over time, um, I would say that they probably will learn and iterate as they get customer feedback, but it should not deviate too much. But hey, 
you know, that's what, uh, you know, entrepreneurs have to do sometimes, you know, when let's, I think, you know, back then Slack, the team was trying to build something else and they'd build something internally. And turns out that that's where the opportunity actually is. And they drop everything and move over to Slack. And I think sometimes those happen, but it's not necessarily all the time. You know, when we build Wattpad, we certainly think about, you know, building, you know, um, a platform for people to share their written words and uh, written words can be an article, a thought piece and fiction. And, and eventually we found that people actually enjoy sharing fiction more than thought pieces. Then we, we just doubling down on that one and say, okay, let's just do more fiction. And then we try to kind of like think about would, would nonfiction work? Well, actually, you know, uh, it will work, but the audience love fiction. So we continue to doubling down on that one. So uh, to answer your question, I think um, the DNA has to be baked very early on but be responsive to customers' feedback uh, unless some signal is telling you that you have to pivot 100%. But most of the time, it's more about iterating based on the customer feedback. And then with Two Small Fish Ventures, if people aren't familiar with that, I'd love you to kind of expand on to what Two Small Fish is and why did you start that and where you focused in terms of an investment? Are you focused certain verticals, certain stage? What's your focus there? Happy to tell you about the story of Two Small Fish. Um, so back then, um, you know, Alan started Wattpad in 2006 and I joined them in 2009, um, you know, when they finally have some traction and just before their seed round. So I joined them and then, you know, helped them to grow the user base, as I said, you know, all the way to Series B. And at the time, um, I just feel that, you know, uh, my skill set works best with early stage startup. Uh, you know, from growth stage wise, I think certainly Alan can do a much better job than 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 I do, and certainly has proven him themselves, proven him that way. And um, and I decided to kind of like you know take one year sabbatical to under to kind of like figure out what I wanted to do. And uh, during that time, me and Alan were believing that hey, we were just two small fish in this big pond of innovation, and um, we come across some fa uh, founders, come across some great products. And uh, we say, why don't we kind of like do a little bit of angel investing and recycle our knowledge basically um, to the ecosystem? Because looking around uh, at the time, not a lot of people have done what we have built, you know, what we have done. And uh, certainly we can share a lot of experience with founders of how we did it. Um, and, and that's the whole genesis of Two Smart Fish. So, you know, fast forward to what we're doing right now, we continue to, you know, um, hone into our, our belief that we have the expertise to help other founders to, to be very, very successful. Um, you know, we have done it. We have proven ourselves, you know, not only starting a company, but all the way to a great exit, finding a good marriage, you know, for our children, um, you know, namely Wattpad, you know, being acquired by Neva. Um, and um, we believe that we can share very uh, insightful experience with other founders to make them successful faster, build bigger companies faster. And uh, so right now we are, uh, I would say a journalist when it comes to investment. So we, we invest in transformative technology companies that are unlocking unprecedented values to their customers. And in the end, those companies should be shifting paradigms uh, in the industry that they are, they are disrupting and bring transformative, you know, behavior to their users. When you talk about like a shift in the industry, 
are you looking to be like an expert in that space and like fundamentally understand, oh, like the shift's going to be a big impact? Are you betting more on, hey, this founder has an expertise in that space and I'm betting on this founder because they're really impressing me? I guess, what are you, what's your main focus when you're looking at like a shift in the industry? I'm so glad you asked because certainly I'm not an expert in everything. You know, if I am, um, <laughs> I don't know, like that, that will make me, I don't know, like an expert in, you know, everything, I suppose. So uh, we, we actually rely on a lot of our operating experience to share it with the founders. But when it comes to domain expertise, we certainly have to rely on the founders who actually understand that. So that's why we invest in companies that are disrupting the health science information base. Not that we are scientists who understand protein data, but they do. But we can share our operating experience, particularly, you know, building uh, AI products, you know, cause, because Brandon, who was the founding data scientist, is also a partner at Two Small Fish right now. So we can actually share a lot of those experience. Um, so let's say, you know, one of the company is building a Web3 product uh, in a storytelling space. Um, that's the space that we probably have some domain expertise, you know, I would say some, <laughs> if not all. But then uh, when it comes to Web3, um, how do you kind of use token economics to motivize, uh, motivate, you know, users to uh, to behave is certainly a, a, a new era. And so that's that that space, we certainly have to work with the, the founders who have all those knowledge to build that kind of a product. So, um, you know, whether we have domain expertise or not, as I said, you know, it's more of the founder. However, what we believe in terms of transformative, it's really based on those founders, if they can, leverage the technology inflection points uh, in that era. So let me give you some example. So uh, during the early days of my career, uh, you know, I was working in the Windows operating system, that kind of an era. Um, so back in the days, um, why would people continue to write code that have no GUI interface, right? And then obviously, you know, fast forward to the dot-com uh, era, uh, everybody understand that the internet is going to transform things. So that's why if you actually look back late 1990s to early 2000, that's the birth of a lot of web oriented, uh, uh, you know, companies, obviously some of them probably bursted, you know, because they have no real business behind it. But at the same time, think about the shrink wrap software that was being written specifically on the platform back in the days. How many of them continue to really carry it on right now? Probably only some, you know, very important pieces that continue to leverage the trends. Like even when we're thinking, thinking about the accounting software, like the Quickens, you know, like the, you know, all those things. Yes, they were shrink wrap, but guess what? They have to move into cloud eventually because that's the trend, right? If we look at also the, um, the mobile era and the social era, for companies that are not leveraging those trends, where are they these days? Like, how can you not have a mobile strategy when everybody's gonna go on to the mobile phones, right? So same thing here, we are right now seeing the AI and Web3 uh, maturing, particularly, you know, web, uh, you know, AI has a major breakthrough with the ChatGDP, uh, 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 you know, large language model, the LLMs these days. So how can you, if you're building AI products or thinking of leveraging AI, you know, technology in a specific, feel, how can you not necessarily, you know, understanding or leveraging these big trends? Because guess what? Next five years, whatever you were building using the very, you know, uh, uh, um, 
you know, old school AI uh, methodologies probably will be obsolete, you know, by then because the large language model probably will have even more breakthrough and that's going to break even more innovations in whatever space that, uh, you know, anyone is innovating in. So I would say for founders to really kind of build that transformative technology company, keeping an eye on those trends are important. So think about back then in 2012, you know, when uh, just before uh, Wattpad raised Series B, we already knew that we leveraged the mobile trends, you know, for allowing people to read and write on mobiles, and also the social trends, you know, that is allowing people to share, you know, and collaborate, you know, on storytelling to, to kind of like get to the, a, a very important milestone is to kind of getting the funding and on a, on a, you know, organic growth trajectory that it's like rocket ship. But at that time, we actually hired Brendan as the founding data scientist to think about how AI and machine learning will disrupt this industry further. So before, you know, the AI nowadays that people are talking about, we, we actually have invested in AI 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. So that's what we, I meant by trying to use technology to continuously to disrupt yourself because you know that someone else will be using that to weaponize it against you. You may as well jump onto that bandwagon and continue to iterate and bring transformative values to your customer. When you talk about trends and AI has just exploded, especially in the last 18 months, and I know you were talking about like you're investing in it 10 years ago, how do you jump on a trend, take advantage of that from like an investor or founder perspective but also don't get caught into like FOMO and you're kind of just investing in anything in that space. I guess you have been investing in 10 years, so there's a lot of experience there, but what are some other things that you do as an investor to not get like blinders and you actually are looking at each investment with fresh eyes? I'm so glad, so glad you asked this questions because I am seeing a lot of companies right now. It's like, I am chat, chat this and I am, you know, large language model this. Remember maybe five years ago, I'm crypto this and I'm blockchain that, right? Ultimately, those trends are transformative. But whether using those trends to unlock unprecedented values to your customer is a totally different thing, right? So when we were building, you know, uh, Wattpad, and as I said, 10 years ago, we already put money, uh, you know, and as a company to invest in AI on a platform, we start off in small blocks. You know, what can we do with AI to disrupt ourselves? Maybe is initially help our search function, or maybe is help us to uncover stories that have, you know, good engagement. So we do it one step at a time and knowing that those little experiments, you will get feedback from the user by proving, you know, a hypothesis. So per perhaps, you know, we were optimizing the, uh, a machine learning algorithm so that people can see stories uh, that are kind of similar. Then you kind of test the algorithm and like, does it actually allow people to click on more similar stories? And if it is, then the AI is already kind of like improving the, the journey of a discovery of a reader. So the idea is not to say I'm using generative AI or I'm using large language model. The journey is whatever tools I'm using in the back end, you don't have to know. Is it really delivering that value exponentially to your customer? 
And obviously, you know, I'm not suggesting that you build it with old technology because new technologies continuously to iterate. But it's have that mindset. It's like I'm using new technology, but that's that's the background. And I'm really trying to unlock the unprecedented value for my customer. That's how you can then avoid all the FOMO. Because you will no longer say I'm generative AI this, I'm blockchain this, just because you have that buzzword. Because like even right now, when we look at uh, companies that are using the blockchain technology, one question we always ask, can this be done without Web3? Why can't Web2 do what you're doing? Is it just because you can kind of like do an ICO or drop a token, send, you know, drop some NFTs? If that's the case, it may not necessarily be the unprecedented value that is really the technology can, can deliver. We will push back and say, if this can be done in Web2, we don't see why you need to invest so much to use the Web3 infrastructure to do what you're proposing. And most of the time we are right. Um, it's just, those are just then the FOMO, that's just the hype and not necessarily focusing on delivering real values to the user. What have you learned as an investor? How do you keep that edge? What things do you do to make yourself a better investor? Is it just continuously investing and you just kind of learn through osmosis or do you do other things that have really helped you? I'm a very curious person. So for me, um, you know, curious person have that natural tendency of like, oh, this is interesting. Tell me more. So in a way, I found my approach of, um, you know, being an investor has, you know, greatly to my advantage as a, a curious person. Because um, when I approach founders, um, not only do I want to look at it as an investment opportunity, kind of like, what is the market sizing and all those questions, but I actually genuinely curious of how they are solving a problem. So I actually spend a lot of time trying to understand how they do, you know, how they build a product. Why do you think this technology will work? Like, why didn't other people work? And, and at the same time, share my learnings. I'm like, mm, you know what, if you do it this way, it reminded me of how we did it at Wattpad, different contexts, but this is how we did it. Or, oh, this is remind me how some other company is doing it this way. In a way, it's a bilateral learning experience. Not only am I giving them feedback, I'm actually learning from them. So over time, you know, imagine we see it, you know, as a team, you know, close to a thousand company per year, 10 years time. I think we've heard, you know, 10,000 pitches. And then uh, some of them, we actually spend a lot of time going deeper dive to understand the technology, how they are doing it. So that basically, you know, allowed us as live learners to be kind of like a sponge, absorb all these knowledge, and at the same time, being able to give back. I've been in the tech space for a while now, employee, Wattpad, investing for close to a decade, over a decade now. Um, how have you seen the Canadian tech space change? I know Toronto has just absolutely taken off, but you know, Canada as a whole, what are some things that you think are going really well? And where are some areas that we think we can really improve on and get better at? The Canadian ecosystem certainly have matured over time. You know, back then when I was, you know, um, you know, fresh out from school, there may be a few VC firm. And even that I would say they're more private equity than VC. And I think during the early days of my career, I've, I've never heard of the, the phrase, you know, the acronym of a VC. I wouldn't even know what that was. 
And um, I still remember when uh, I graduated from uni, my mom was disappointed that I joined a startup. Um, she was thinking that I should be in a big corporation and retired there because that's what my dad did. And uh, the mindset was very different back then. But I think right now, as we look at um, you know, great engineering school, continue to pump out entrepreneurial uh, graduates, um, that mindset has already changed. You know, some some students, you know, maybe they were from very traditional family. They will push back and say, but, 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 you know, when I was working in this work term at Google or when I work at this work term at Wattpad, you know, that's the environment that I want to be in. That's the company that I want to do. Perhaps I even want to be one of those. So that experience, you know, it's, it's life, it's lifelong and life changing in some ways. And at the same time, you know, if we look at how in a, I would say in the past five years, the gig economy completely change people's mind. Like, you know, you can, you know, not that people dream about being a lifetime Uber driver, but hey, the option of running your own business, you know, the, the options of, uh, you know, doing things on your own terms, it's no longer unreachable. People crave for that, you know, I'm gonna call in shots for my life. I'm not gonna be, you know, stuck in a position. So all of a sudden, that entrepreneurial spirit, it's becoming more and more vibrant. And that's awesome because that means that we will have a new generations of young people coming into the ecosystem wanting to do something different, you know, it's different than their parents, you know, different from the previous generation. That's awesome. And at the same time, our tech talent, it's like world class. Right. You can see how, you know, many uh, companies come to Canada just to scoop out talent. So, you know that we have world class talent. And now I think, you know, with um, the last 10 years, you know, the technology companies uh, are growing so well, you know, like the Shopify's, like the Wattpad, like the Wealthsimple and, and many others. Um, we are generating a lot of experienced tech talent and executives also in our ecosystem. So you can see how things are coming together and allowed us to really take the world stage. So I'm actually extremely bullish, you know, with our ecosystem here, not only in Canada, but in, not only in Toronto, but in general, you know, coast to coast, you know, in, in, in our country. And, uh, you know, even when we look at the East Coast, Verifin, you know, that exit just generated, like, I don't know how many millionaires there that are reinvesting not only the capital, but also the experience in the ecosystem in the, in the, in the East Coast. And um, so I, I, I feel that, you know, with our talent here, with our experience here in the country, uh, it certainly is maturing. And I really think that, you know, the best is yet to come. How do you think we, we kind of keep up that momentum? Because I know, you know, in the last year now, we've had some valuation crunches, we've had some layoffs. How do we keep up that momentum? Is it just more getting more people into the space, creating more of an entrepreneurial kind of community support network, whether that's investors, incubators, different spaces? What are some things that we can just kind of continue to do to improve that? So to do uh, better and to keep up with the momentum, um, one thing we must do is to overcome one of the weakness in our ecosystem uh, in Canada, particularly is our you know, smaller risk appetite than our cousin down south. So, um, you know, when we think about the maturing of the ecosystem, I think one of the things that we always, uh, you know, encounter as VCs during our um, meetings with, with startups is 
many of them can't wait to tell us when they're going to exit. Many of them can't wait to tell us who is going to acquire them. Our experience is that, you know, when you build a company during your early onset, obviously in the back of your mind, you would think, huh, if I become successful, so-and-so would be paying me so much money to buy this. It's natural. It's natural to think that way. But I think, you know, at the same time, having been in the industry long enough, we have to ask ourselves these questions. The question is, what if? The what if is like, what if our dream, you know, company never warned us? What would that leave us? So we have actually seen a lot of zombie companies, you know, in the ecosystem, meaning that at one point they may be darlings and uh, they were hoping to be acquired by some companies. But guess what? If they could not iterate themselves um, and if the, 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 the potential acquirer actually build that capacity in their company, they don't actually need to acquire you, then they will become zombie companies. So what I'm trying to say is that for us as entrepreneurs, we should always build in in our strategy is to be self-reliant, is to do things on our own terms, in our own timing. And to do that, we need capital. When we need capital, we need bigger risk appetite. And that's what's really lacking in our ecosystem, I think, from many fronts. Uh, the risk appetite sometimes, you know, you can say that is the it's the founder's problem. Oh, you didn't want to kind of build a billion dollar company, but guess what? They actually need investors to actually support that. So VC for us, we should be uh, right now is, is actually the best time to invest. We should actually take much bigger risk because right now is where innovations is happening rapidly and uh, companies knew that the winter is here. So they don't necessarily, you know, kind of like sought after those crazy valuation during the, you know, as if it was the, the boom time. So this is the right time to invest. But at the same time, if we have, you know, oh, I'm going to wait and see, I'm going to wait and see, then on the sun, you know, these companies that are actually doing true innovation, taking, taking, you know, advantage of the latest trends, they're going to starve to death. And if that's the case, then we, we it's a missed opportunity. So for us, as we see, we must put more money in right now. Then that speaks also to the to the up, you know the up chain. It's like all those institutional investors, all those high net worth. We we cannot say, oh, you know what, interest rate is so high. Let's just park the money in the bank. Of course, you need to do that for a lot of the asset. But guess what? We should always have a bucket for this risk profile that we want to kind of swing the fence, swing for the fence, and get that high return because you know that's where the multiple of multiples will come. And, uh, and, and I, I just feel that, you know, if we were to keep the momentum, the risk-taking part is absolutely something that we should challenge ourselves on. How do you see that mindset shift happening with like that institutional investor base? Like I'm seeing more and more, you know, VCs pop up, whether that's like a solo GP, more like angels. And I, I talk to more high net worth people that are like more active and interested in venture capital. Do you think that's just time and it's just going to take like those laggards to come in or are there ways that we can kind of accelerate that from an ecosystem perspective? So certainly time is a factor. I think, you know, time, it's always the uh, most important ingredient in anything. So as particularly when it comes to change, you know, that we need it, you know, to, to see that. But at the same time, what I see most important is actually collaborations. Um, you know, learning by osmosis, I learn a lot from founders. Then I think also learning by osmosis, by, you know, working together as the capital 
um, behind all these startups. So I would say angels should learn from VCs and then the institutions should also learn from angels, you know? So I think it's, 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 everybody has different risk appetite and that's okay because, you know, everybody has to be responsible for their own investment. They have their own investment thesis and return model and that's okay. Um, but at the same time, you know, can we find ways to actually work together, uh, get closer together so that we can actually leverage each other's strength and compensate on each other's weaknesses? So for example, um, angel investors, they may not necessarily have that kind of um, pocket to, to fund a $1 million deal. But if there are companies that they think is really transformative and potentially have that return multiple that is attractive to VCs, well, bring us in. We will tell you whether it's, it's have that kind of return multiple or not. Even if it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the opportunity may not work for an angel. It may not work for a VC, but it works perfect for an angel. And we'll explain and tell you, you know, how you can potentially get that return and, you know, what needs to happen. And that's a win-win for everyone. And then at the same time, you know, some high net worth wants to write angel checks, you know, the angel checks, maybe half a million dollars at a growth stage. So guess what? Then maybe it's actually a good idea to put some money uh, in, in, in a VC fund and use them as a channel. Like I actually have a lot of family offices, you know, kind of work together with me in that capacity. They said, hey, you know, for us to write $10,000 check, $20,000 check, it's totally noise, you know. Uh, but, you know, uh, us as a family office, we're looking for opportunity to write $1 million check, $3 million check, $5 million check at growth stage. You know, when a growth stage is raising, you know, 200 million or raising 100 million for them, you know, to get into the opportunity to write a $1 million check or $3 million check, founders may not necessarily want to entertain them because it's, it's too small a check when it comes to raising a $200 million round. But if the, 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 the family office has already established those relationships through a VC fund, hey, for me, I'm already, you know, an early investor, you know, in this company, indirectly, that family already have money in this company, that connection can get closed relatively easily. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, collaboration, work together, leverage each other's strength to compensate each other's weakness uh, is actually the best approach to overcome this risk appetite problem. Because you are not necessarily, you know, for, let's say for institutional, they are not necessarily putting money in 1,000 uh, startups because it's impossible for them to manage. But at the same time, they work together with VC funds uh, as funds of funds. And that's what many of them are doing is to basically spot those up and rising so that they can go invest directly at the growth stage. And that's how we kind of like work together. And I would love to see more of these collaborations happening. And I think then over time, the market will mature. If we look at the US market, the endowment fund for Harvard is ginormous. Guess where they put the money? A lot of the VC funds, right? So that's how you kind of like have that collaboration. You kind of, you know, compensate on each other's risk profile and grow from there. What is your most recent investment at Two Small Fish that's been publicly announced that we could chat about and dissect a little bit. I wish I can tell you more right now, you know, for the fund three that uh, we have made three investments already. Uh, you know, two of them are, you know, more, you know, under the radar, so I cannot really talk about it. I think one of them, you know, we certainly have not, you know, make a huge announcement around it, but 
It's some some is a company we are more than happy to talk about. Uh, the company is called Bubo. So Bubo is actually based in New York. Um, it's uh, head, you know dual headquarter in South Korea, Seoul. And what they're doing is to bring the beauty industry you know closer to those entrepreneurs, particularly beauty influencers, and allow them to further democratize the beauty industry by creating products, specific products for uh, the demographics of fans that they engage with. So imagine right now, a lot of um, companies, they may say, oh, you can customize a lipsticks. And, and what they do is basically, you know, have very generic lipsticks and they kind of put the logo on like the Eva lipsticks and start selling. But this company is actually bringing the innovation of the beauty industry in South Korea. Uh, you know, the influencers, you know, the beauty expert, I should say, who have a strong followings, you know, on the internet, they can actually customize at the at the uh, formula level. So imagine, you know, this beauty influencers particularly love to talk about product that's you know good for uh, users that have eczema. So the eczema lipsticks may be very different than the generic one that you just slap a logo on. So they will be able to say, hey, this new formula it's good for people who have eczema. It's you know it doesn't have you know uh, animal testing on it and so on and so forth. So they can customize it at that level. So you can see that, you know, I enjoy working with companies that really unlock unprecedented values because, you know, imagine I have eczema and I have the problem, not a lot of product out there will serve my need. And certainly, you know, for a big corporation, they may not necessarily want to bring a lot of SKUs, but guess what? If this influencer has a million or 2 million followers that have ticked this problem seriously, they can run a very, you know, a profitable business and address the needs of the end user very closely. And uh, you can see how we then, you know, invest in uh, platform-based uh, technology companies that will then allow this kind of democratization to happen organically. So certainly this company is very early. They are not necessarily at scale right now, but that's the vision. And that's the type of technology companies that we love working with. Very cool. Uh, you mentioned fund three there and, you know, you and your husband, Alan, you know, had raised multiple rounds at Wattpad and now you've raised three funds. Is there nuances between raising for a company from VCs and raising from LPs for a fund? Absolutely. Huge difference. For those of you who have never raised a fund for, for VC fund, then I got to tell you, a brace yourself is very different. Um, so think about you know, asking your girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, to marry you. Um, that's how founders raise funds for their companies. All you have to do is to make sure one person give you that ginormous diamond ring. And then you kind of like get some small people to chip in for the banquet and then you'll be, you'll be done. Right. So you may ask like, 50 investors or maybe even 200 investors. But guess what? As long as one of them say, I'm going to lead the round, I'm going to feel most of it. And then you just have to have other people to kind of chip in for the cake, for the, for the tablecloth, you know, for the banquet and you're done. But raising for VC fund is very different. You're basically inviting people to join the party. And people have to want to come to the party, believe that they actually will get value out of the party to join you. The smaller the fund, then the smaller the party. The bigger the fund, the bigger the party. Then on a sun, you may need to talk to 1,000 people 
and have 100 of them come, you know? So, uh, but then at the same time, if you are targeted, you may raise a relatively small fund and you just kind of like talk to the most influential people who can write you big checks and 10 of them will come and, and that's okay too. But what I'm trying to say is the scale of, um, you know, getting yes is very different. Uh, founders, you probably need one or two, and then you'll be okay because you can then get the smaller angels to fill the the smaller uh, uh, a portion of the round, and and it's relatively easy. I'm not saying that it's easy, but it's relatively easy. But when it comes to raising a venture fund, you do actually need, um, you know, some people write you big checks, and many people write you relatively smaller checks to join the party. So one is to throwing a party, one is to make sure someone marry you. <laughs> I love that. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and would love to know your favorite book. And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading. I actually love reading a lot of, um, you know, technology uh, industry type kind of books because it keep me on my toes and I find it entertaining, especially when you're reading a story like, oh, I know this person, I know this person. And that is kind of like very, very fun. Uh, one of the books that I actually enjoyed a lot is called The AI Superpower by Kafu Lee. Um, it's, you know, I would say a few years old now, uh, but a lot of the insights, a lot of the thought around how AI is uh, being implemented, um, you know, in our, in our day to day and how, you know, AI companies going to disrupt the world and how founders should be approaching this problem. I found it very, very fascinating. Um, yeah, but otherwise I do actually read a lot for pleasure. Um, sometimes I read on Wattpad, <coughs> excuse me. But um, I do actually enjoy a lot reading, you know, technology oriented, um, you know, company books. I was recently being gifted a latest novel, uh, latest book by um, Colonel uh, Chris Hatfield. I, I haven't read it yet, but I can't wait. And then I was uh, in the Bibliobash Gala uh, fundraising for the Toronto Public Libraries. And I was at the same table with an author called William Ping. And uh, he is, um, you know, have the Chinese heritage, and he wrote his book about his grandfather as a first generation immigrant, Chinese immigrant in Newfoundland. And uh, so I can't wait for, to read that book either, because it, for me, it, it is going to be very interesting. Like, I could never you know, imagine first generation Chinese in Newfoundland, as opposed to, you know, first generation Chinese in Toronto. Uh, I'm sure that that experience and those stories will be very different. So I can't wait to read that either. I'll have to check that out. That sounds really interesting. I'd love mm -hmm. to know what you're most excited about in the next 12 months, personally and professionally. So personally, um, I'm very excited uh, because um, one of my daughters will be uh, going to uni uh, in New York. And I think for me, um, it actually gives me an excuse to be much closer to the New York ecosystem. I actually do invest in uh, North American. I would say 60 to 65% are, you know, are, are gonna be from Canada, but uh, because of our reputation and our network, um, you know, in, in North America, particularly through the Wattpad journey, we have a very strong network in, in, in the US. So I think, you know, I can't wait to spend more time with my colleagues um, you know, in New York to look at some of the East Coast uh, opportunity. And uh, I, I think that will be a lot of fun. So I kind of mix in personal and, and, and professional together. And um, yeah, I think 
you know, when I talk, when you ask me this question, I'm like, hold on a second. Why am I mixing work and, 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 and uh, personal together? I guess that's just how I am. And that's just how um, I enjoy working. And uh, my, my, my hobby is to really be curious about the latest technology trend. And uh, so naturally, I, I just, you know, love, you know, in, you know, being in that space. Uh, but I do actually hope to travel a little bit more now that, you know, the, the, the pandemic, it's, I'm not saying it's over, but it certainly, you know, allowed us to be more uh, doing things a lot more like how it was before. Certainly want to see the rest of the world um, because I, I did not, you know, during, you know, the, the height of the pandemic and um, certainly want to take advantage of the time to basically see how the world has progressed. Um, I, I noticed that, you know, every few years, if we visit a, new, a, a, a city that we have been before, we can actually tell a lot by, you know, how much uh, that that city has progressed, um, and it reflects a lot mostly in innovations. Um, and uh, you know, it could be infrastructure innovations, it could be people's day to day innovations, and uh, you know, not not until you actually immerse yourself in a city to live there for you know three four days, if not a week or so. Uh, sometimes those things are too subtle to notice, but once you notice, when you bring it home. You'll say like, but the Germans did it this way, but the French did it this way. And can we do it over here as well? Or can we actually combine what they were doing, do it better here? That's what excites me all the time. And then last question before I open up the mic to you. How do you deal with hard times? Do you have any kind of tactics or things that you do to mitigate that? Hard time is absolutely unavoidable in anybody's life. You know, you can ask my daughter when she was two years old I'm pretty sure she had a hard time because my mom her mom didn't let her to have that ice cream right that was the hardest time ever you know and you know hardest moment in her life and then as we continue to progress right now you know for founder could not fundraise and they're about to run out of money certainly is an absolute really really hard time and me and Ellen certainly have went through that you know during the early days of Wattpad um, he started the company in 2006 I can tell you a little bit about that um, I would say from 2006 to 2008, we were literally, you know, at the brink of selling our house and be, you know, using those money to to fund the journey and and lose everything. Uh, every month, I would I would say, you know, late 2007, early 2008, we were getting two dollars from Google Adsense every month. Um, so you can imagine, you know, how much debt we have racked up for ourselves and literally putting our the family well-being, you know, from a financial perspective on the line. And some people call us crazy, but guess what? We did it by drawing a line on the sand. We gave ourselves limit. We said, I said to Alan, I said, you know, you told me you're going to do it to two years. So let's just stick with the two years timeline. And the most I'm willing to lose is the house. Like once we lose the house, that will be it. I'm not going to rack up more debt and be negative in, in the family network, uh, you know, net worth in a way. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, once we sell the house, we can pay all the debt and then we'll be to zero and I'm okay with it. Um, to go, to go through those kind of hard times, it's really about support. It's really about having your loved ones there to, to be your sounding board and at the same time supporting you um, through, through those journey. And I'm very lucky to have a husband like that. And I'm, I hope that he will say the same thing that he had me, you know, during those tough times. 
But I think you know, for founders, tough time is actually a reflection point for us to figure out: Are we on the right path? Of course, I'm not suggesting people to give up easily, but I'm just saying that, like, how much are you willing to bet, and how much are you willing to lose, and be rational about it, and not emotional about it. That will help us go through a lot of the journey in a unregrettable way, because you have put everything on the table, you have done your own analysis, you know what you are willing to lose, and you know where you don't, you're, you're not willing to lose. So when you look back in the future, you will always go through this analysis again, and you will do the same thing over and over again. Then you will have no regrets. I love that. And Eva, I'd like to open up the mic to you. How can people get in touch with Two Small Fish, or just anything that you'd want to talk about to wrap it up? So to wrap it up, I would just want to encourage founders right now. You may be facing a very difficult time.、Uh, I just want to first of all say you're not alone. Uh, I've been there. I know exactly how you're feeling. Guess what? You know the world will go on, and you know the venture that you're building may not go on, but your life will, and you will see a better day for sure. So I just want to encourage everyone. You know this is not the gloomy day. You know the better day are coming for sure. Now、uh, to reach out to me, you know I think LinkedIn and Twitter probably is the easiest for me to kind of get connected.、Uh, if you have a specific ask, make sure you spell that out and say I have this ask. And I'll see if I can be helpful. Sometimes I may be, sometimes I may not be. And、uh, if you want to pitch to us, you know, pitch at、uh, twosmallfish.bc.、Uh, it's an email that you can, you know, just pitch to us.、Um, you know, we do actually look at those pitches and、uh, try our best to connect and, you know, hear your pitch. And、uh, so those are the three easiest way, you know, to connect with us. And I look forward to hear from all the founders、uh, in the audience right now and see how we can be helpful. Awesome, and we'll link all that in the show notes. But Eva, I really appreciate the time today, all the insights. Thanks again for coming on. Well, thanks so much, Evan, for giving me this opportunity. I enjoyed every minute of it. I hope the audience do as well. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn. And subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.